Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. He pressed forward and up, the rocks crumbling beneath his sandals, the heat beating on the back of his neck. He sat down on a large rock and looked down the mountain. Thousands of people all following him. He thought back to the unimaginable things that God had done to bring them to this point. The Red Sea, the plagues, his basket in the Nile. Lots of people have interesting stories, but there had never been a story worth being told as much as this one. So he pulled out a scroll of papyrus and stared blankly. He thought to himself, where to begin? And as he pondered, he began to write the words, in the beginning. You know, I've got to admit to you that one of my favorite books in the entire Bible is Genesis. Uh, And I know that that probably confuses a lot of people because when you think Genesis, you probably think about all the genealogies and the excessive amount of boring history. But when you read Genesis as a story rather than a history book, then you can begin to see the richness of this story. And suddenly, the rest of the story of the Bible will come to life when you read it through the lens of this first book, Genesis. So, uh, we're starting this brand new series in the book of Genesis, and, uh, and it's going to be wild. Uh, it's going to be, I think, a lot of fun, uh, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover the entire book of Genesis in eight weeks, All right? Some of you already, your heart started racing, there's some sweat, you're worried. It's okay. Listen. South Valley just finished a series through the book of Leviticus in five weeks. So I think we can do Genesis in eight, right? It's 50 chapters. So that's just six and a quarter chapters per week. It's easy, right? We got this. Uh, But there are two main breakdowns to the book of Genesis. Uh, Essentially, we have two halves, right? So we'll do four weeks in each of these halves. So the first part that we're going to look at is the entrance of sin into creation. Uh, This is the creation narrative. It's the story of Adam and Eve, their fall into sin and the resulting fall of humanity. It's the story of a loss of hope that leaves you worried that there may never be hope for humanity again until you get to part two. 
See, the second piece of Genesis is the preparation for a Messiah. This is when uh, we come to the story of Abraham and the promise left to him. We'll look at his descendants in the book of Genesis and how each of them brings hope for a moment only to let us down. But all of it is laying the groundwork for a better Messiah, a, a better Adam, but also a better Abraham, a better Isaac, a better Jacob, a better Joseph. Genesis is littered in the story of Jesus. And it really sets the stage to allow you to understand the stories of the gospel better. Genesis is more than just creation. Genesis is a story of hope. Uh, Hal Lindsey, beliefs aside, we won't get into that, but uh, Hal Lindsey was a former pastor and he said, Man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. In his book, Good to Great, Jim Collins writes about something that's called the Stockdale Paradox. Uh, he tells the story of a prisoner of war who... Uh, he, he was a soldier in the army of the United States of America, and he became a prisoner of war, and he was able to confront the brutal facts of his current reality. But when, when he was able to survive and make it back home, he was asked how he did it, and he referenced hope. See, while many others has, had held out hope in the short term, Stockdale always believed he would make it home, and he was in it for the long term. He didn't know when he would make it home, but he knew he would make it home. He had an unshakable hope that drove him to not only survive, but to thrive. So hope. Hope is a central theme in the book of Genesis. It's the story that we read, the lens we apply to properly understand what the author is intending to communicate us. So let's pick up the story. Let's get into Genesis. So we'll start with a, a pretty familiar passage, I think. Most of you probably know it. It's the very first passage we read, Genesis 1.1. And we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This first passage in the Bible brings some questions. Who is God? What are his intentions? And what should heaven and earth look like? Well, we begin to read through the narrative and we watch God create in this wonderfully poetic way. And side note, this is one of my favorite things about the book of Genesis. See, a lot of, a lot of books that we read are, are just one style of writing through and through. And Genesis, it gives us a lot of narrative. It gives us a lot of history, but it also gives us some beautiful poetry. And the way that the Trinity moves in tandem is almost a song and dance bringing creation into existence. It, it should be enjoyable 
for us to read because that's how poetry works. But immediately following this, we, we read the story of creation. In the beginning was God, and then we start to see God create. We read the story of how a good and perfect God created a very good and perfect creation. And you're probably familiar with the story, but if you're not, God, over six days, created the world in which we live. On the first day, he created light. On the second day, uh, he separated the waters from the waters. On the third, he separated the land and the sea and created vegetation. The fourth, he created the sun, moon, and stars. On the fifth day, he created the fish and the birds. And the sixth day, God created the land animals and humanity. Now, here's what's funny. This is what we know the book of Genesis, this is what we know the book of Genesis for, right? This is when you think of Genesis, you think of the creation narrative. You think of this story. You think of, uh, if you grew up in the church, the times that you spent in Sunday school with a flannel graph and sticking those little pictures for each of these days to that flannel graph, right? And you probably had to be quizzed in some way or another about what happened on what days and you got some sort of uh, weird candy if you got something right because that's how Sunday school works. Uh, that's what we know Genesis for. We know it for the creation narrative. But church, listen, this isn't even the good part. The good part is still coming. It's almost here, but this isn't even the point of the story. It's not the point of what's being written in this book to us. And sure, there's lots of important and valuable material here for us to know, but in the grand scheme of things, what is to be communicated to us through Genesis, oh, we haven't even gotten there yet. We haven't found the point yet. Remember, we asked, who is God? What are his intentions? And what should heaven and earth look like? Well, who is God? And we start to look at who he is and what he does. And he orders creation. So to some degree, we've seen that. So to some degree, we, uh, this tells us what heaven and earth should look like. But we're still missing a lot of who he is and what are his intentions. That has yet to really be answered for us. See, if you're familiar with the creation narrative in Genesis, you're familiar with a little theme that follows each day. So before that, you know, I've been working from home a lot more for obvious reasons. Uh, and each day I have this office slash guest bedroom slash music room slash storage room that I work in. Inside this room is uh, has been a dinner table and a bar stool that I sit at with my computer to get some work done. And the problem with sitting at a bar stool all day is that you shouldn't. It's, I can't even communicate to you how uncomfortable it is. Uh, and beyond discomfort, just the angle that your hips and legs have to stay in for hours on end, it's just not good for your body. 
And so it, it was just, it was killing my hips and my lower back. Plus the sitting up higher was causing me to slouch more, uh, which was hurting my lower back and my upper back. And it was just, it was a mess through and through. So uh, not that I really have a place to put one, but I decided that I needed to get a real desk. So every so often I would jump onto Craigslist and I would look to see if someone was just looking to get rid of something, like I'm looking for free or max like $5, that's my goal. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't having any luck. Well, out of the blue, my aunt posts on Facebook that she has two of her office desks that she's looking to get rid of. First come, first serve. Boom, right? I mean, I don't think that I've ever pulled out my phone so quickly to get a hold of someone. Because, you know, when it comes to dibs, like, I'm not playing games here, all right? So, I get the promised, uh, I get promised the desk, and uh, now I just need to get it home. And it's definitely not going to fit in my Honda Civic, right? So, I draft the services of my cousin who owns a truck. And listen, y'all truck owners are suckers because us Honda Civic owners are just reaping the benefits of your trucks without having to pay for the gas every day. Uh, but we love you, keep helping us, we appreciate it. Uh, we're just not gonna buy trucks anytime soon, all right? But we love you. Uh, but, so my cousin, he helps me load up the desk and he actually gets one for himself as well. So we took the two desks and we stack the desks in the back of his truck. Like we put one uh, in the truck standing like a normal desk, the other one we flipped upside down and put on top of it. And uh, so we get those stacked and everything in there and my cousin starts just going to town with tie downs. We probably spent more time putting tie downs on the desks than actually moving them out of the office and into the truck. So when we finished, my cousin just says, all right, and jumps in the truck. And, but listen, I know better. I know that there is a code when it comes to strapping things down. So I grabbed one of the desks and I, I pushed and I pulled a little bit and I go, that's not going anywhere. Because you aren't really a man if you strap something down in your truck and you don't say, that's not going anywhere uh, when you finish. At least I think that's how manhood works. Uh, but but that's what that's what we always seem to say after we strap something down. But see, Genesis is like that. It's predictable. Just like I say the same thing every time I strap something down, God seems to have a catchphrase each time he completes something here. And so we'll just look at the first one. We pick back up in Genesis 1 and in verse 5. It says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, if you're familiar with the story, do you recognize the catchphrase yet? At the end of each day that we read that there was evening and morning and which day it was. It happens on day one, two, three, four, five, and six. But wait. Aren't there seven days in the story? So we pick up again. This time we fast forward to Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. 
And we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Oh, church, church, this is so good. I don't want you to miss this. Actually, I want you to catch what's missing here. See, following this, the writer actually just goes back and recaps the story of creation. But we're never told that there was evening and morning and that there was a seventh day. We never read that. And I want you to understand that this is very, very intentional. Because see, the idea of the Sabbath, of rest, is more than just to take a break because you worked hard. It's so much more than that. See, I remember when my wife and I moved into the house that we're in now. And it's actually a bigger deal than when we moved into our first home because I owned like three things then. I was moving out of my parents' house and then with my wife. I didn't have much to take with me. But my boss at the time, when we moved into this house, he had a massive trailer. And so we made a couple of trips with it in addition to family bringing trucks and loading those up and making multiple trips. We moved couches, appliances, dressers, desks. We moved all of it, right? And I remember there was the first time we got the keys and stepped into our brand new home. Bleached white carpet, which was not a good idea in the long run. Uh, empty walls, empty floors. It was just an empty box, but we were going to make it a home. And over a couple days, we got everything moved into the house and we got settled in. And once we got to the point that we could settle down we took a big sigh of relief and we Sabbathed. And I don't mean that we just crashed and rested, but we enjoyed. And, and this is paramount to understand Sabbath. The rest that God had on the seventh day, we enjoyed the work we had just done, the purchase we had made, and the effort to move into the new home. We sat in the middle of the living room with each other and our one dog that we had at the time, in the middle of all our belongings, and just smiled. We were just there to enjoy it, to be a part of it. So here's the question. What are we supposed to stop when are we supposed to stop enjoying our home? Are we ever, right? Are, are you starting to understand why the writer never told us that there was an end to the seventh day? There was never supposed to be. God, from his throne, created heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he stepped into creation to enjoy his work and his creation. And that was never supposed to stop. That was always supposed to be part of the story. And so we can look at this and we can unpack this even more. We'll fast forward to the New Testament where uh, we'll look at the, at the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to break this down a little bit, but let me just start by reading Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. And in verse 1 it says, Therefore... 
while the promise of entering his rest still stands. While the promise of entering his rest still stands. This is in regard to what the author just talked about. The Israelites who escaped Egypt for the promised land. That was to be their rest, but they refused to trust God and experience his rest. And that promise still stands. That rest is still available. So then the writer of Hebrews keeps going. And in verses 3 and 4, and then we're going to jump to verse 9. We read this. It says, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then jump down to verse 9. And it says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This rest that God took in Genesis chapter 2 is a theme that carries on throughout the entire biblical narrative. The author of Hebrews even quotes Psalm 95 where God references his rest. Not a rest in general, but his rest. He rested on the seventh day and and we were never told that that rest ended. He does in fact still have it and he's inviting us into it. That's the hope of Genesis. We asked some questions before, one of which was, what are God's intentions? His intentions are to rest and enjoy creation with his creation, with us. And that intention still stands. The hope that Genesis offers us is that the Sabbath rest that God entered into on the seventh day is still available to us. And the author of Hebrews writes in this way that a lot of Christian theologians call already but not yet. For those of us who have by faith accepted Christ as our Lord and committed our lives to him, we've entered into that rest already. But also not yet. We have a taste of that rest We have a taste of that spiritual freedom that's been brought to us through Christ. But from the start, God didn't create humanity as strictly spiritual beings. So he doesn't intend to redeem us strictly in spirit. There's more to it than that. There's a physical rest that is coming. That's the kingdom that Jesus came preaching. That's why Jesus told all of us who are weary to come to him because he can give us rest. He can give us what we're so desperate for. Because it was always God's intention for us to have that Sabbath rest with him. So, of course, we're falling apart without it. We were created for it. So there's this rest for the Christian. There is freedom for you if you're found in Christ but your work isn't done yet. We are actively participating in the kingdom of God, in bringing the kingdom of rest that Jesus came to bring. So when we look around at our world and all of the civil unrest that's going on, this is our opportunity. This is our duty 
to stand up and bring peace, bring rest, bring the kingdom of God to this world. As Jesus prayed, on earth as in heaven. That was the prayer of Jesus, and that's to be our prayer as well. If you've read through the Bible, then you know when you see racial injustice, that it is in direct opposition to what God intended in his creation. You know that it has no place in the kingdom of God. And listen, this hurts me because this means that I am just as much at fault as anyone else. But I firmly believe that the reason we're in this, uh, the cultural climate that we're in is because the church has looked at injustice and turned a blind eye for too long. And church, we can no longer operate that way. And I'm not talking about initiating church-wide initiatives, though I'm not against that. I'm talking about you. You are the church. You stand up. You listen. You bring reconciliation. Your job is to lead others into the Sabbath rest that God created and is still in. And your job is to bring the fulfillment, the, the fullness of that, of all that God has to offer to this world. That's what Jesus started, and that's what he called his church to do. The world looks the way it does right now because people have suffered injustice for a long time. I'm not downplaying the heart of sin. I'm not downplaying that we are broken creatures at our core, and that's going to lead to all sorts of different problems. That is the root of all of this, 100%. But that doesn't give us a right to neglect injustice. That didn't uh, push Jesus to neglect injustice. In fact, Jesus spoke boldly in the faith of injustice. And I believe that we've turned a blind eye for too long. And you may look at the current circumstances and ask yourself, what changed? What changed that escalated things to what they are this time? Can I tell you what changed? Hope. Hope changed. Because when people lose hope, things change. And when injustice continues for too long, people lose hope. And church, this is our job. We should be the people bringing hope. This is the story uh, of, the, of Genesis, but it's the story of the whole Bible. It's here to tell us there is hope to hold on to, keep holding on. And we're failing to bring that hope to the world. And I'm saying no more. This is our time. This is our calling. This is our purpose. Bring hope. Bring love. Forget your politics. Bring hope. Bring love. Jesus is offering you that hope if you haven't experienced it yet. He's offering rest to your weary soul. So step into love. Step into hope. Step into rest. Repent and commit Jesus as Lord of your life. Enjoy rest and bring that to the world. God, I come into your presence just praying for our humanity as a whole. God, I personally apologize that I have not adhered to the words of Micah 6.8, that I have not loved 
justice, sought mercy, or walked humbly. And, and I pray that the church as a whole could rally around that passage and that we would pursue those things with all of our might because Micah tells us that's what you are requiring of us. That's what you've called us to. And God, we believe that in pursuing these things, you will bring hope, that your hope will be evident. And that as we bring a story of hope to the world, the things will change that you will move and your Holy Spirit will radically transform this planet and that your kingdom will come on earth as in heaven. So God, forgive us where we failed, but convict us, move us, lead us, press us forward to be your hands and feet, to love the way that you would love and to bring hope and to bring rest. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.